The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Today, 2022 predictions. Joining me are Brett McNeil, Vice President of Legal Affairs at Can Community Health, Inc. in Florida. Rob Yates, Deputy Attorney General with the Indiana Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. And Joe Wolf, partner with Hall Render based in Milwaukee. Rob, Brett, and Joe are all members of the Fraud and Abuse Practice Group Leadership Team with AHLA. We want to hear where they're focused in 2022. Rob, Brett, Joe, welcome. First, I want to introduce Brett McNeil, who's Vice President of Legal Affairs with Can Community Health, Inc. in Florida. And um, Brett, tell me, what are you uh, most interested in in 2022? And uh, where do you think we're going to see some, some movement uh, in the fraud and abuse space in this upcoming year? Well, well thanks, Matt. Uh, for me, you know, what I'm most interested in seeing in the coming year is, is really the aftermath of the Alina decision. So Alina, as we all know, is a 2019 Supreme Court decision that that really changed the way that CMS regulates the program. So let me, before I kind of get into the details, let me give a kind of set the, the table here. So Congress passes Medicare in 1965. It's in Title 42 of the U.S. Code, Title 42 of the CFR. But, but as most practitioners know, most of the CMS maintenance and prosecution of the program is on the basis of this, what I'll colloquially call sub-regulatory guidance. So that's bulletins, manuals, handbooks, website postings, and, and the rest of it. So fast forward to 1987, Congress passed a law that said, hey, CMS, if you're going to tinker with the Medicare program, you, you need to go through formal rulemaking if you're going to change or establish a substantive legal standard. So Congress there didn't identify or define what substantive legal standard meant and basically left that for courts to figure out. Fast forward 20 some years and you get the Alina decision. And that decision is noteworthy for, for two reasons. One is it, it jettisoned the APA paradigm for measuring the legality of Medicare regulations. Basically said, look, um, don't worry about whether it's an interpretive rule or it's a legislative rule. Don't worry about that. The second thing is if is really to kind of go back to the 1987 change in the Medicare statute, which is if you are going to put forward a policy that's going to change or establish a substantive legal standard, you need to go through rulemaking. Um, unfortunately, the court didn't provide much in the way of clarity on what it meant by substantive legal standard. They basically said, hey, future courts, your problem, not ours. Well, courts have, you know, in the aftermath of Alina, struck down a number of longstanding CMS policies. Um, and I'll just run through a few of them. So, for instance, there was a 1983 policy that was invalidated. And this policy basically set forth requirements for hospitals to receive payment for collecting certain bad debts. 
The court there said that that policy was a substantive legal standard, didn't go through rulemaking, therefore it's invalid. Another one, and this one was in the False Claims Act context, a 1989 CMS policy for establishing payment requirements for inpatient hospital admissions. Again, substantive legal standard, didn't go through the rulemaking, invalid. The last one I'll, I'll touch on briefly is, is Agendia versus Azar. So this one, the judge said that a local coverage determination is a substantive legal standard, did not go through rulemaking, so therefore it also is invalid. That decision got appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit reversed the, the district court, but in a two-to-one decision, basically said LCD is not a substantive legal standard. It provides, it's, it's, it's merely an interpretive guide to determining the appropriate legal standard, which was the reasonable and necessary requirement for Medicare reimbursement. The dissenting judge there basically said, no, 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 that, that's not right. It, the judge there basically took a very pragmatic, more realistic assessment of the content of that LCD and the role it plays for purposes of payment disputes and said that in the eyes of Alina, that is a substantive legal standard we're getting it wrong. District court got it right. So the things that I'm, I'm really looking forward to watch in the months and, and years to come really kind of boils down to two separate things. One, further refinement on what substantive legal standard means, whether that, that, that comes out by way of further development in the case law, maybe knock on wood, Congress amends the statute to define clearly what substantive legal standard is and what it's not. Um, so really curious to see how that plays out. The second thing that, that's really intriguing to me is, is how CMS is going to respond to Alina. As, as most of us know, so much of the Medicare program is operationalized on the basis of the sub-regulatory guidance that that they know and we know did not go through rulemaking. So really what is this CMS going to do? So I think that should be really interesting. And you know, I, I think it's the jury is still out and how that one's going to play out, but really interested to see how that is going to change things perspectively. And, and really the, the, it left the lingering question of how CMS is going to justify the enforcement of some of their longstanding policies that, you know, because of Alina, they probably have some vulnerability there. Brett, very interesting and raises some questions for me as well. I'm thinking of it from the OIG's perspective. And as OIG launches into efforts this year to improve uh, its guidance, to uh, take a more innovative approach to how it provides substantive feedback and direction to stakeholders in the industry from a fraud abuse perspective. I wonder if we're going to see a movement um, to increase the number of guidance documents issued from OIG based on notice and proposed comments, uh, 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 notice of, uh, and proposed rulemaking rather, uh, and public comments as opposed to simply issuing a special fraud alert or an advisory bulletin or the like. Um, of course, you know, uh, having the you know, public comment period, the proposed and the final rulemaking um, certainly extends that time frame. So much to, much to come this year, I imagine, on that front. And um, interesting to see how 
uh, the branches of government are impacting uh, what we do on a daily basis. Speaking of uh, uh, the branches of government, I'd like to introduce our, our next guest, uh, Rob Yates, who is the Deputy Attorney General with the Indiana Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. Rob also serves on our Fraud and Abuse Practice Group uh, leadership team. Uh, Rob, what's interesting to you in 2022? Uh, share with us your, uh, your thoughts. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm really looking into the uh, the 340B drug discount program, and we've all heard a lot about the contract pharmacy litigation. Um, HHS is contending that uh, pharmaceutical companies not extending the 340B discount to cover when they utilize a contract pharmacy instead of an in-house pharmacy. Uh, the patchwork of rulings across various district courts has resulted in HHS appealing that ruling to uh, the DC circuit. Uh, but for a little bit of background, um, 340B and its kind of sister program, the Medicaid drug rebate program, are both requirements for pharmaceutical manufacturers to also participate in Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, it's kind of understandable that they don't appreciate maybe offering these rebates and discounts to their, to their products. And there's always been a little bit of tension between the government and the manufacturers in the program. Uh, in 2020, you'll remember that uh, HRSA sent out letters to various manufacturers warning that they're not extending the discount to contract pharmacies uh, was in violation of the 340B program and could result in action from DOJ. And uh, as this has progressed the last couple of years, we've now moved into uh, the appellate realm. And where, where I'm really interested from a, from a fraud and false claims standpoint is the similarity between the 340B discount and the, the Medicaid drug rebate discount. Uh, we've seen a lot of litigation over the past few years of underpayments from, to the MDRP program. And I think... Uh, We'll continue to see similar litigation in the future related to the, to the 340B program and probably some increased both the government auditing activity for, within the 340B program and increased whistleblower activity in that area as well. So that won't be the headline grabbing stuff over the next few years. It'll certainly keep uh, in-house counsel, outside counsel, and government counsel busy over the next, over the next several years, I believe. Absolutely, Rob. Well said. And I think that um, this is an area of interest for a lot of us this year, the 340B program. Lots of twists and turns, uh, uh, you know, uh, drug manufacturers uh, moving in one direction, uh, government regulators potentially moving in the other. I think one thing that's clear and that would be helpful from both sides would be some uh, very clear guidance from uh, HHS on some of these issues. Um, and as we just talked about, of course, you know, uh, uh, having a proposed rulemaking and final rulemaking following the APA procedures would also be helpful as well uh, and certainly give uh, some credibility to that guidance. Uh, turning now to our Vice Chair of Educational Programming, Joe Wolf, partner at Hall Render. Joe, you've always got interesting insights into what we can expect to see over the coming months and years. Uh, what are you thinking for 2022 and uh, where is your attention focused right now? 
Uh, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, looking at 2022, you know, in, in my practice, I focus on physician compensation. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, looking towards all things physician compensation. Uh, we've had a lot of activity um, during, you know, going back to 2020 through now into 2022 related to physician compensation models, you know, related to COVID-19 productivity issues, compensation model and staffing disruptions. Um, and now with the recent uh, Omicron surge, I, I had a number of calls last week about continuing compensation adjustments and surge coverage type models that are going to continue. Um, and so that, that, that is part of this. Uh, what I see on the horizon now is a, is a continuation of those disruptions. And then when we couple that with um, the, the new Stark and kickback regulations, many of them went into effect last January, January 19th, but some of them um, are going into effect or just went into effect on January 1st of this year. Notably, the new group practice rules uh, went into effect. And uh, just for a quick background, uh, the start group practice rules are, are extremely complex and I'm not going to get into the weeds on them, um, but, but those new, new changes went into effect on January 1st. Uh, those changes are going to impact private medical groups and also system affiliated medical groups that rely on the start group practice rules. Um, and, you know, if, if your organization, those of you listening in, rely on these rules, you probably have heard of the, 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 five, the, the pot of five or overall profits test or a group practice productivity bonus test uh, to make sure your arrangements are compliant. Um, if you are relying on those group practice rules, uh, you need to make sure that any profit sharing um, and productivity bonus models uh, comply with these new rules. Uh, one big change that came out or one clarification relates to um, what the government has coined as a prohibition on split pooling. Um, and what that means is when if you're paying based on overall profits in your group practice model, um, the government's making it very clear that profit sharing is allowed in group practices um, that consists of fewer than five physicians, but if you have more than five physicians, the new changes make it clear that overall profits means the aggregate of all DHS profits for the entire group or a pod of at least five physicians. So you can't be creating um, split pods based on services. Um, instead, you need to be looking to one of those two rules. It's an overall DHS profit pool or a profit pool within that pod of, of five. Um, so, so definitely uh, in the, a complex concept, but it's sort of a call to action that if you haven't looked at that group practice model for a while, it's time to now look at it in line with these new rules. These new rules are already in effect, so you need to, to move quickly. Um, the other area beyond the group practice changes that just went into effect that that's, um, is, is significant in the industry is the changes to the Medicare physician fee schedule. And I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about this. It, 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 it drew a lot of attention back in 2021, where we saw material increases in allocations of RVUs associated with certain um, E&M service codes. And so physicians that had a, a very large um, um, E&M service uh, platform uh, would, would immediately have higher allocations of RVUs. That not only impacts reimbursement, but if a physician is employed and is paid under a an RVU compensation plan, if they get allocated significantly more RVUs um, going on to the new fee schedule in 2021 would have resulted in, in, in very high increases in compensation. And so uh, healthcare organizations have 
had to look at their compensation plans, look at these fee schedule changes and have and they've had to come up with a, a, a an approach uh, for 2021. Now they're thinking about what to do in, in 2022 as well. Many froze their compensation plans and continued to follow the 2020 fee schedule. But now, now they're looking to the future and saying, well, when are we going to transition to the new fee schedules? Um, if they're making that decision, my, my advice to healthcare organizations has been, first, understand how you calculate compensation, what fee schedule you're actually using, um, understand what market survey data you're relying on, because uh, due to the recent COVID disruption and now the fee schedule changes, um, the, the market survey data is, is, um, ha has also seen some, some disruption as well. Um, it's gonna be important to understand what survey data you ultimately should rely upon um, due to you know, huge decreases in productivity due to COVID um, and how that has uh, played itself out in the fee schedules. Um, healthcare organizations are gonna have to come up with their own strategy this year and in future years about what fee schedule to pay their physicians based on. Um, and also how to uh, look to uh, address these issues of, of, of huge disruptions in fee schedule allocations in future years, they might want to make contractual adjustments. So this is on healthcare organizations all across the, the country's radar. Um, it's continuing now into 2022 with the recent fee schedule changes and definitely something I'm focusing on, Matt, um, in, in my practice. Um, so those are the, the, everything physician compensation is because of these this conflation of disruptors, uh, COVID-19, the regulatory changes, now the fee schedule and um, uh, data, market data issues are, are kind of colliding um, to create uh, some disruption in the comp world. Well said, Joe. Thanks so much for sharing that. And of course, you know, the one, one, one uh, visual I have uh, as you were speaking here is, um, you know, it's the new year, time to make some resolutions. Uh, and if you're, uh, you know, uh, interested or concerned about physician compensation, take a look at your compensation plans uh, and uh, review against some of these uh, recent start changes and, and physician fee schedule changes to make sure that your, your plan is up to snuff. You know, when I think about 2022 myself, uh, I'm focused right now on a variety of issues. But of course, I turn to the OIG regularly. And um, when I'm thinking about what's new for 2022, I keep thinking about telehealth. And first, you've seen over the you know course of the past uh, couple of months, some expanded telehealth coverage from CMS. We've seen uh, movements afoot um, for legislative expansions of telehealth coverage. Uh, we've also seen the OIG take an interest in telehealth coverage with a recent OEI review uh, of telehealth services and federal healthcare programs. Um, given the public health emergency, given the sort of expanded opportunity for Medicare payment for telehealth. And then, of course, given DOJ's interest in the use of telehealth as a tool for fraudsters uh, uh, committing traditional Medicare fraud via telehealth, I think that um, the focus on uh, telehealth arrangements uh, is certainly an important one, a critical one for this upcoming year. Uh, I, you know, to the extent that uh, a company delivers care or an organization delivers care using telehealth and that uh, that care is delivered based on expanded coverage criteria that are currently in place as a result of the public health emergency, or uh, to the extent uh, that uh, telehealth is used in your business uh, and, the, 
and there is a significant amount of Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement associated with it. I think it's important to take a look at those relationships right now, make sure they're stru structured appropriately, and to be prepared to pivot if necessary uh, based on the public health emergency potentially ending and, uh, a, a, and a lack of a clear mandate from Congress to continue expanding telehealth coverage. I'm also interested in what the impact of the midterm elections will be towards the end of 2022. Uh, I, there's certainly some room for legislative changes uh, or legislative um, uh, 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 updates, so to speak, uh, both in terms of uh, warding off future Medicare cuts, uh, to your point, Joe, uh, but then also, again, uh, the legislative uh, need for legislative uh, uh, direction on expanded telehealth coverage. All of that could be impacted, of course, by the 2022 midterm election. So I'm interested to see what happens there. And then on the CMS front, more of a non-fraud and abuse issue. Um, I am interested in hearing where CMS goes in terms of MSIT or the Medicare coverage for, for innovative technology rule. Uh, tr the Trump era rule was uh, uh, eliminated, uh, rescinded rather, last year. Uh, but we did see in Biden's 2022 regulatory plan a move uh, or a note rather to uh, to put its own uh, uh, version of that rule in place. So interested to see where that goes as well. And of course, um, that won't be until later this year. Uh, but uh, Brett, Rob, Joe, thank you so much for joining, for sharing your thoughts for 2022. Uh, of course, we'll look to see how this pans out over the next few months, uh, but appreciate your leadership with the practice group as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. This has been another edition of the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Please stay tuned for another episode next month. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.